The views, information or opinions expressed during the Journey podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and does not represent Wise Words Imaging or any other company. Wise Words Imaging is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy. Any of the information contained in the podcast series is available from the respective owner. Enjoy the show. Some say he's a technical whiz. Some say he was born in Cornwall. While some say he's on a journey. It's the journey. And here's your host, David Hackett. Joining me today on the journey is a person's journey I've been following for, um, I forgot how long, but I know it's been a while, and it's the Neo-Divergent Rebel, better known as Krista, and like me, autistic. And that is the topic we're going to talk about today, autism, and about your journey being autistic and how you find life being autistic. Welcome to the journey. Thank you so much. I, I, I'm really honored to be here. I, I appreciate it. It's fun to kind of get to come up here and, and ramble and, you know, as an autistic person being asked to talk about one of the things you're passionate about is a dream come true. And since I found out I was autistic at the age of 29, which I feel is kind of late in life, uh, it, it's been one of my number one uh, obsessions, so to speak. Uh, and so it's always top of mind. So now I get to come info dump. So yay. <laughs> <laughs> so you found out in later life you were autistic. Yeah. Did you, did you ever know there were signs before you were diagnosed that you were autistic? Or did you just think, I'm just different? Oh, no, there were definitely signs. And I, I knew also I was different. Um, the school tried to have me assess for learning disabilities when I entered public school early on in elementary. But because, you know, this was, I'm going to date myself now, so we're going to hold in. But uh, it, was, it was early 90s when I was in elementary school. So uh, at that time, the language was very pathological, and so my, my guardians bristled up, and they're like, there's nothing wrong with this child. How dare you? Learning disabilities, you know? And so they're like, we, we don't want to have Krista tested, and they, they, I even have a typed-up letter that I found recently that, you know, was in my grandmother's attic that was, like, something that had been, I guess, given to the school saying, we're deferring the testing right now. We're going to get some tutoring and do some other things, but, you know... We'll, we'll do something on our own. We don't, we don't want the school digging around in there because they were so afraid of a label being put on me. Uh, but I was already really struggling. You know, the school picked up on it. Um, and there were other labels that were being put on me instead, like defective and broken. And, you know, I, I thought I was stupid. And, you know, I because even though I was smart in my own way. I wasn't smart in the way the school needed me to be smart. Yeah. You know, that what they're looking for academically. Uh, I, I had a very different kind of 
existence really in general that didn't translate well into the school to just how I learned and how I need to know why everything is the way it is I can't just act you know without knowing the (laughs) reasons behind things and it was like it got me in trouble with authority figures and teachers and things like that because it's like I'm always asking why why and people thought I'm trying to be difficult or but it's like I really had to know I was also very curious and about everything but it's like I had to know how things work to be able to do things I think part of that's because I'm a very visual thinker so it's like I need to be able to visualize the process to know why I'm doing something so I can do it I can't just do something otherwise I don't know why I'm doing anything and I feel really lost (laughs) yeah it's like I will relate to my because this is what the journey is about I often refer to my life and try and understand it from both sides of the coin. But I, my life, being autistic myself, I never had the full diagnosis until I was 16. And even at 16, I never really acknowledged it publicly. I kept putting myself in the dark, saying, I'm not this, I'm not this. I tried to put myself as a label, saying, look, I'm David. But I wanted people to recognise me as been doing things but I learned in later life and I'm now 37 that you can't go out saying I'm David you've got to be recognized for who you are not for saying I'm David look I'm this with a massive list for me to see yeah so, so school in mainstream school in England because I work from England originally I found it difficult and people put it down to behavioral problems Mm-hmm. Now, now would Same. you say, now would you say autism back in the day was labelled as behavioural problems intentionally, or? Well, I mean, I didn't have the autism label, uh, so so my behavior I was labelled as a behavioural problem and a behaviour child, and they were trying to assess me for something. So I don't know, you know, if they were, you know, but in general, I was treated as if my, like, when I struggled, it was treated as if it was a behavioural problem. It was really just like, I was struggling with the environment, or I, you know, I, I really was like shutting down or overwhelmed or it was anxiety and things like that who are labeled as me being rebellious or stubborn or re- refusing to read aloud, even though I knew how to read when it's really like I couldn't make my mouth move because it was stuck because I was so anxious in front of reading in front of a whole class of peers all of a sudden. Mm even though I could read far above grade level, I couldn't make my mouth do what I knew it could do because I had so much anxiety. And it was like, you're being difficult. You know how to read. You just be refusing, refusing. I was told I was refusing to do things a lot of times when it was anxiety. Uh, and, And, you know, maybe because I was autistic, I wasn't able to really communicate very well as a young person what was going on with me. And I didn't know I was autistic. So, you know, when you don't know you're autistic, you also don't have, there's a whole vocabulary you are missing to explain what's going on in your world. Uh, and that makes life really difficult and confusing because you've got all these things going on and you don't really understand why they happen because they're not things that make sense to other people. Yeah. And so people kind of dismiss you and be like, you're overreacting, you're, you're a mess, you're nuts. Like people say these things to you all the time and you're like, what's, why, what's wrong with me? Why am I, why? <laughs> You know. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. It's like I'll say about I don't mind talking about school because it was 
L and I will admit it. Mm-hmm. For the first for, for the first four years, because in England there I educations for five years, but for the first four years, I was always doing things. I was always causing tro- trouble. I was always sent into isolation because I was misbehaving. And the conception was, I thought, I'm doing this wrong. I'm getting a, not getting away with it in later life because I got suspended from school. I got suspended from college. But I was put into isolation. There was no real clarification. They just put it, David's been awkward. David's this, David's that. And I'm thinking, surely there's more to it. And mm-hmm. when I attended college for the first time, and this is where it started getting questioned, they said, as your son, this is to my mum, they said, as your son been... Um, assessed and she said no what for and they just said because he's got some issues we want to know what it is and she still was like in the blank and then by the time I was 18 I left home and where I was living in supported accommodation because I couldn't live independently as they put it they finally took me to a psychologist and the psychologist diagnosed me with Asperger's and I know the autistic umbrella now is known as ASD, so I've got to be as broad as I can on it. But Asperger's at 18, I didn't know what the word was. Like you, oh, probably, yeah. did, like you probably didn't know what autism was. Oh, I had no idea really until I stumbled across a book that was an autistic book and started reading. And it wasn't even a book about autism, but it was a book by an autistic person about another subject. And then they explain their experience in the book. I'm like, but wait, you're explaining my experience. Hang on a second. And it was a wormhole from there, you know, um, Uh, suddenly all all the time I spent sitting in the hallway in school started to make sense right you you got put in isolation I I spent a lot of time sitting with my back against the wall like this in the hallway outside the door (laughs) (laughs) because I couldn't sit still in class I was always like getting up and and running around all the desk pods and things like I you know I think the most classic example of a subject I struggled in school was math I really struggled with the concept of understanding math and the teacher taught me for the last three years of my school education and me and him clashed and every time I got him angry he went red as anything and he looked like he was going to have a heart attack because I made him that angry but the thing is when he took said outside the room so you can just cool off whatever it was I was always kicking the door. I was always saying, I hate you, I hate you. But they still didn't do anything. But like I said, I was 18. I got assessed. I got that label as Asperger's. And I still didn't recognise it. I had the money. I had the disability. I knew I had the rights to say, I've got this, I've got that. But I didn't publicly acknowledge it until only last few years. And that's oh, thank. And that's thanks to my wife to say, embrace it. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, you know, there's, that's where a lot of people are still. It's a journey, right? Because mm. there's a lot of stigma out there. There's a lot of misunderstanding. It's something that when you disclose to people that you're autistic or you have this diagnosis, 
people don't always understand what that means because they have narrow ideas of what they they've heard of an autistic person and so this Mm. is what they think or they know someone's little kid that's autistic and you're an adult and it's very different because you're much older than this child they probably know or whoever they're thinking of and every autistic person is so different you know you're different from me you're different from the next we all have you know a lot of different things going on um and some of us more than others and so you know people don't understand that and so when you tell them you're autistic a lot of people unless they're like a unicorn need more explanation yeah and so it's a laborious process explaining to someone that you're autistic uh and then you know we'll have to wonder are they going to say no you're not or i don't really you hide it well or oh but you know you you must be so high functioning and they do these things that they think are compliments because they think you saying oh I'm autistic like they're uncomfortable with it they don't know how to respond and they think maybe you're saying something bad about yourself and in Mm. society when someone says something bad about yourself you're supposed to reassure them that they're great right so they're like I'm autistic and they're like oh no you're not you poor thing and it's like no 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 this isn't a bad thing I'm telling you (laughs) and it just makes it it's like oh my gosh it's here we go again and then you have to like do so much explaining and you're like is it worth the energy right now do I have the energy for this right now am I going to pick my battles and it's like I've decided to make this my life I don't know why I've, why 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 do I want to make this what I'm going to do all day every day I don't know <laughs> but um but it's because we have all of these uh myths and these misconceptions and misunderstandings and misrepresentations and narrow representations and stereotypes and stigmas and just all these things we have to break down yeah um and eliminate so that when we tell people we're autistic we don't have to deal with all that anymore Mm. because that i it's exhausting it's like i'm i'm someone who's come out of multiple closets in my life you know i'm also part of the lgbtqia community so before i knew i was autistic i knew i was in that camp and would come out and have come out many times and you you come out over and over again you never stop coming out because anytime you meet someone new if you choose to disclose you're coming out again and you don't know how they'll take it right because everybody takes it differently um and coming out queer is way easier and simpler than coming out autistic although they're really similar uh but people don't tend to push back and be like oh no you're not queer i don't believe you or i would never have guessed or oh you hide that so well like you know if you said that to someone who came out to you about being gay or being queer you'd be like what the f you know, we know that's not appropriate and that's not okay to say generally. Most people would know that's not an okay thing to say to someone. But with autistic people, for some reason, people don't understand that this is not the right response. And it's like so many autistic people don't even want to come out because of this. Or if autistic people haven't found other autistic people or realized that being autistic doesn't make them broken and they've bought into the idea that having this diagnosis means that they are intrinsically flawed somehow because sometimes we've bought into this idea that's been sold to us 
if they are in that mindset where they think this about autism and being autistic, they're not going to want to take that on and admit that, you know, they have to have a mind shift before they can apply that label to themselves. Um, You know, it's like when I, when I was in elementary school and they put me in special education for a while before my, my parents like formally or my guardians formally were like, we don't want to do any testing for learning disabilities or any of that. I did spend time in special ed. I've done time in special ed, general ed and gifted and talented. I've done time in all of them, you know, (laughs) Uh, I've been all over the place. Nobody really knew what to do with me. But, you know, when I remember being in special education and back then I was like thinking, you know, I, how the kids were treated, how we were treated in special education we were treated like we were broken or we were the problem or we needed extra work to be fixed. And that was really horrible. And I remember thinking, I'm not broken. I'm not broken. And it made me want to be like, I'm not like those kids, but no, it wasn't that I wasn't like those kids. I was just like those kids, but I didn't like the way society treated those kids. And I didn't want to be treated like that too. You know, and it's like, I am those kids. I was those kids. And I'm still, you know, now we're grown up. And I hate that society still treats autistic people that way. And neurodivergent people that way. uh, That, like, they're the problem. And that they need to do all of the fixing and changing to fit into society's systems. Instead of asking people to stretch and meet us halfway. Mm. It's like um, enough recent example. I go to my local church, and there's a new pastor who started last year. And when I started talking to him, he said, "How do you want to be known as David with autism or David as David?" Now the automatic response in me, and I still get saying, "Why should I say it?" But I said, "I'm David with autism, but I want to be known as." David because I don't want to be stigmatized and treated differently than anyone else yeah yeah and and see some people don't want to or aren't ready in their life for a place where they want to have that all out in the open and you know being openly autistic is actually a bit of a privilege right because it's not even safe for everyone to be open with being autistic no. Uh, some people can lose their jobs or like I've I, I've had people that I've heard have had trouble in family court over custodial issues bec- and had their diagnosis used against them uh, in, in that respect too, uh, in, like in a divorce situation where the other partner says, oh, well, you know, they're autistic. They can't take care of the child. Mm. Yeah. And that's horrible because it's not true. Uh, I know so many autistic people who are fantastic parents i i not my cup of tea um but so many great autistic parents out there you know yeah so that's really unfair uh to have that just because oh i've got that label and have it used against someone in that way uh so it's it's you know being open is something i i do knowing that not everyone has that availability um and try to do something good with the fact that I can be. Yeah. Because uh, it, I feel lucky. Yeah. I have a daughter who's 15. She's autistic. I haven't seen her since the age of five because she's living with her paternal aunt. But the local authorities in England 
deemed me inappropriate to look after her because of my autism. See? Yeah. And even though she's got autism herself. They said that I was, because I chose to be with my ex-partner at the time, her mother, I stuck by the mother, and they thought I wouldn't cope with my daughter. And they used the label autism in the reports. And I'm thinking, why? I'm strong, I can do this, I can do that, I can take, uh, and I'll say the American way, diaper. <laughs> you know, I can do everything a parent should do. See, got- exactly. It's discrimination. Yeah, totally. And it's based on stigma and stereotypes and definitions that are only based on deficits and autistic people generally like you know we talk about even these diagnostic manuals that they use to pathologize us as autistic people right and we have to check box these criteria and they ha- we have to by definition have these things be in make us struggle in our life in you know occupational areas yeah so by definition if we aren't struggling, we don't get diagnosed. Even if we do have all of these things, you know, they, they want us to be down on our luck to be diagnosed, uh, which is terrible because autistic functioning, it fluctuates throughout our lifetime. And so that's why, you know, I've had this up and down thing. I, I didn't know I was autistic, so I didn't know or understand my needs. And I was constantly pushing myself past my breaking point and burning myself out over and over again, uh, even since I was a child, you know, in school. Uh, And I burnt myself out, right? And that's how I was diagnosed. I was going through another burnout. I was getting really sick. And I was burning out because the things that made me sick weren't things that make neurotypical people sick. And we couldn't get to the bottom of what was causing my problems because I didn't know I was autistic. Yeah. You know, I needed that missing piece of information. Um, and, and it's just a, so many things just lost, you know, because I didn't have that. So that's why the autism logo and most places use the jigsaw because it is piecing together the missing pieces. That's how I guess. I... Well, no, no, not really even because, well, I don't know. You because, see it twisted. because that's a conception I'm thinking. Why do they use a jigsaw for autism? Well, that's probably like if you want to try and make it nicer. But, you know, really we think about, you know, like this blue puzzle. This is like this thing for little kids and children. And, uh, I know, for adults, you know for adults, there is no real definition. And that's. Well, it ignores adults, this little puzzle yeah. piece. It's and this a very is childish where, little thing, right? And this is where you come in as your page, your YouTube, your social media. You break the myth and you break the barriers that adults want answering. Like you talk about can autistic people have sex? Why can't autistic people have sex? I saw in the recent one. And I can yeah. perfectly understand that because... It's difficult. Some people find it strong. Some people find it difficult. I find it difficult. Yeah, everybody's different. But some people love it, you know? Yeah, and since watching that video, it made me realise a few elements in that is true because I think I'm like that. 
but then also past trauma puts me in a position where I don't feel comfortable. But I'm not saying I don't love my wife because she'll kill me because she's right next to me. (laughs) Something will fly into the screen. (laughs) (laughs) But don't worry, she's got your phone too. (laughs) But, (laughs) But the fact is, I love her. She made me overcome a lot of anxiety. She made me strong. She made me come to, you know, said this would be good. And I overcame a lot of anxiety. I immigrated from the UK to America. Oh, why? Goodness. Why would you do such a thing? <laughs> I love America. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah. You sh- should have brought her over there. Oh, goodness. Well, the journey I liked, and the only reason I've come to America is because my journey in England came to an end. I wasn't, okay, fair. I wasn't suitable to be there anymore. There was enough drama there that would have put me into more danger, I think. So my wife saying move to America, immigrate to America, and me saying, yeah, because I was the one who brought it up. It was for the right choice, and I'm comfortable being there. But the stigma is on me now because I'm finding it difficult to find a full-time job. Yeah. I think that's so important, though, to know when you need a fresh start, because sometimes you really do need a fresh start. You just look around and, you know, you you saw that, oh, this is a bad situation and staying here can't it won't be any better if I stay here. In fact, it'll probably only escalate and get worse. It's time to move on. That's because, you know, I I think for me as an autistic person, like that's kind of hard sometimes, especially because I like the familiarity of knowing my surroundings, knowing what's going to happen and going to something new, even if it's probably a better situation, isn't always easy. I struggle with new, even when it's a good new, it's even good change is hard for me sometimes. Like eventually I know I can get used to it. Like I know now, okay, we're going to do a change. It's going to be difficult for a little while, but it'll be okay. And eventually I'll get used to it and I'll get over it. The pain is only temporary, you know, things like that. I tell myself, so it'll be okay. But I didn't always have that toolkit. Um, yeah. It's, but, it's been a process. But the process about me coming to America for the first time, I had a plan in my mind. I followed that plan. But I knew I was going to somewhere new. The first part I was familiar with because I've been to that place before. So from where I lived in Cornwall to Ireland, Dublin, I was familiar with Dublin. Even though I haven't been to the airport. I knew off Dublin, so I was okay. Yeah, I know where I'm going. Dublin to New York. Uh, I was yeah. <laughs> How long was that flight? That was seven and a half hours. Oh my gosh, that's really long. One flight that long. And then I had to change in New York to get to Pittsburgh. Oh my goodness. Wow, but the, 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 the annoying thing is, in that New York to Pittsburgh scenario, I was in JFK Airport, which is the world's biggest leading airport possible. Wow. And I had no, you know, signal on my phone because obviously it wasn't set up for international calls or anything. Mm. My phone battery died. The Wi-Fi in JFK is like you got paid three ninety five for whatever the cost was at the time. So oh, I couldn't man. access anything. And I had no American money on me. I just had British money on me. Oh, my God. Don't get me wrong. I had my, my bank card. I could have used that. But 
I was struggling physically and mentally, and my mind was overloaded, so I had to have earphones in, listening to music. There was no way of contacting at the time my fiance, my wife. Yeah. And uh, I was panicking, panicking, panicking. Luckily, the pilot of the flight I was due to get on, he said, I've got a phone. Do you know your wife's you know, partner's number at the time? And I said, yes. He said, yeah, use my phone. He lent me his Yay. phone. So I was able to say, I'm okay. I'm in New York. Don't worry. <laughs> this is the pilot's phone. He's going to say that we're going to lose. <laughs> and oh I felt... And, but being in JFK was a big experience because obviously I haven't been to America before. Yeah. But the second time when I actually got the immigration paperwork, I went a different way. I went via London and then into Canada and then from Canada down into Pittsburgh. That was still busy and it was stressful because they messed up on the paperwork so I had to catch a later fly. But I felt more comfortable. Yeah, because you know what every, to expect, right? Yeah, and this time I did have an American phone, which, you know, I was able to use to say, I'm here, I'm landing, I'm waiting. peace of mind. Yeah, so as soon as, the, even though they say turn off phones, I was on the phone as we was touching down into Pittsburgh, saying, I'm here. <laughs> so nice. I overcame that just because I experienced it. Now, if I went straight from, you know, I met my wife and that was it. I came to America and that was it. Probably I would have struggled. But because I had a prior experience, I overcame oh, yeah. I overcame that. And it was a more comfortable experience. But, oh, totally. But being in JFK when I first came to America, with, you know, on the trip... Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's totally relatable because, you know, I when I started doing public speaking, like I was literally terrified of that. And I was not very used to air travel at all. And so like I would get somewhere and I would be completely overwhelmed and have a migraine and just be sick to my stomach and just exhausted and then completely unable to sleep from being somewhere in a hotel, not familiar to home. And I would be such a mess, like through the entire thing, it would just take the life out of me to travel. When I first started traveling all across the country to speak, oh my God, back before this apocalypse started and we stopped seeing people and the Zoom world launched and began, right? Back when we used to see people face to face. That seems like a really long time ago. Oh, the real and, life still exists out there. <laughs> but, but, and t- but before that all started, I had finally gotten used to all the travel. I had my routines. I had my noise-canceling headphones. I had my neck pillow. I had my, like, oh, you get your snacks and you get on the flight. I knew what I was doing, and it wasn't so stressful to me anymore because I had my comforts, and I found things to look forward to on the trips to make it more fun. And I feel like if we go back to traveling to see people in person... I'm going to have to learn things kind of all over again and get like, yeah. a routine down because it's been so long since I even got on a plane. I don't know. I don't know. Do I want to do that even? I don't know. I don't know. It was like, there's the good side is it's really cool to go to a conference where there's other autistic people. 
Mm. You know, especially if there's more autistic people than neurotypical people, that's like the best thing ever. But now I've got to do a lot of things like this where I meet other autistic people and we talk on Zoom. And I think I get to have more one-to-one conversations with a lot more autistic people now that the Zoom thing happened. So, I mean, it's like, oh, which is, I don't know. It's like, I don't, I don't know where I feel. Zoom, it takes a lot less out of me to just like, you know, when we're done, I close my computer, I put it away and I'm going to go outside in the sunshine and that's it. And where that's my commute. Where my commute is closing my laptop. <laughs> and, no you wrote escape. and you wrote escape when you got time. Because I noticed yeah. you like that. <laughs> they're right. They're like right around the corner, like sitting on the floor next to me. Yeah. That's probably actually what I'm going to go do. Because uh, I got a few hours of sunshine and it's in the 70s. Sunny. Well, here is a bit cooler. I don't know how warm it is, but I know it's cooler. I know we know I have it can be rocked, it can be cold. <laughs> well, Texas tried to kill us a couple of weeks ago, you know. We had like yeah, six. I guess six and no electricity. <sighs> and how did you cope with that? Uh, we we abandoned ship and went somewhere that had power. It was like the morning the first day the power went out. It went out at like 1 a.m. and we're sleeping. And we're fine. We have all the blankets and everything in the bed. And we're all cozy. And one of the dogs is a husky. He don't care. But the other dogs are all in bed with us trying to get warm. And they're like under the blankets, which is not typical for all of them. You know, usually only one of them likes to do that. Uh, and like when we got up in the morning, uh, the water bowl in the kitchen was frozen solid <laughs> in the kitchen. I'm like we're out of here so we went to our girlfriend's house and the power was off for like four days we're still repairing and finding like cracked pipes and damage in mm-hmm. both our rvs uh this is you know i'm sitting here in this small trailer that i usually use as kind of my studio to come and do these recordings and have quiet space where the dogs aren't it's parked like right behind our RV and we're living in that trailer right now. And all the dogs are here and they've been doing a really good job at sleeping through all of my recordings today. I booked like an hour between each one so that I could take them outside and help them get their energy out for a while. And then they go back to sleep and it's worked so far all day. Oh my goodness. It's like knock on wood, right? I don't want to knock because then they might bark because <laughs> they're dogs. Um, but hopefully they stay asleep uh, or, you know, if my guy gets home, you may, there may be all sorts of chaos because that's the best time of the day. You know, when somebody gets home, uh, that's party time uh, and you will hear all four of them go nuts <laughs> well you're the second person i've interviewed who's autistic the first person i've interviewed i think he follows your page as well he's called tigger pritchard and okay he, and he calls himself tigger because he likes tigger <laughs> that's awesome but the fact is he's in his 50s he's my former college lecturer only recently and he's in his late 50s must i add i'm not sure how old but i know he's in his 50s only recently, he's discovered his journey about being autistic. Mm-hmm. And for so long, he worked with special needs students. You know, he worked with people. And there was an element that he thought, am I this? Am I that? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then he had a diagnosis of autism. And I applaud his journey because, like you, he's come a long way without knowing until later life. And I'm thinking, I applaud that. So for anyone who's autistic, and you probably will endorse this, it's better to be yourself 
and being proud of being autistic instead of hiding behind that mask. Oh yeah, the the mask is almost what broke me. It is what led me to uh, learning I was autistic, but it was a big part of why I was always burning out. And having that burnout was because I was trying so hard to be something I wasn't, to be what I thought was expected of me. Uh, And I was holding myself to neurotypical standards because I didn't know there were other standards. And I was really hard on myself when I would fall short of what I thought I should be capable of because I didn't really understand that I did have disabilities that and differences that made it to where I was unable to do certain things the way neurotypical people did it. Mm. I needed to be able to have more freedom and flexibility to kind of work in the systems in my own way. And a lot of times the systems were so like, narrow like this is the way it needs to be done you need to work this way you need to do things this way and I didn't know I had a different way um and that was really always a struggle you know that not knowing so do you think it's a lot easier now talking about autism or is it still areas you find you struggle on Oh, talking about autism has gotten very easy. The hardest thing is keeping me from going too far on a tangent or like, you know, if, if we're doing a free flow thing like this, where I don't have a bunch of notes in front of me, it's real easy for me to go, okay, I want to talk about this. And then I'll start talking and I'm like, wait, where was I going with that? And then I'm lost because I don't have a bunch of notes in front of me because my brain is like a big mess. Uh, I don't know. I've also got an ADHD diagnosis and I'm processing what that means to me still. But uh, it's like, it's all the things. Wait, where was I? it's like i've come not prepared myself but i know enough of you to relate to certain things so that's why i'm able to say no notes i can talk to you now back in the day i probably would have been meticulous i would have done some research i probably would have had four or five pages of notes to cross-reference i do that for some things like if i'm doing a presentation and i have to lead the presentation like that was what i did this morning I had a PowerPoint with notes and slides and I did a lot of rehearsals and then I taught students, you know, about things and I teach businesses things and those I, I do all of that. I do the prepare. Uh, but when you tell me, Oh, you don't need to prepare anything. I'm like, okay, you're going to let me ramble. I figure you, 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 you want everything that's going to come out of my mouth. Here we go. <laughs> that's what the journey's about. It's been about natural. It's about being, you that's what i would always say to people if i do have notes i will say i've got a few notes but i'm letting you do the talking because it's about because it's about you yes i can make late and say this is me so you know about me but it's about you well thanks for coming up here (laughs) and letting me ramble (laughs) (laughs) so i'm not going to argue about that that's fun (laughs) So talking about social media, and I'll be putting the links in the YouTube as well as Facebook and everywhere I post. What's your websites and where people can follow you for your journey to read more and watch more? Yeah, I'm actually pretty easy to find, which is good. It's neurodivergentrebel.com. Also, neurodivergentconsulting.org. Those are my two websites. But if you just Google Neurodivergent Rebel, it'll pop up everything just about on me it'll pull the social media it'll pull the the website and the blog and the youtube and all of those good things I, i'm not hard to find <laughs> <laughs> so 
last question, so you can have your world of skate break and you can offload your mind. <laughs> what would you say to people watching this now who are unsure about autism? How you mean unsure? Unsure as in they don't know if what they, it if is? They, or if they think I've got autism, what should they do? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're wondering if you might be autistic, uh, you know, the first thing, I, every, you know, everybody's different, but what I did is, okay, at first, I was already dealing with the burnout, and I had been going back and forth to the doctor to try and figure out what was going on and why I was so sick when I came across, you know, this, this autistic perspective. And so I looked for more autistic perspectives and I read and educated myself more about autism. Uh, and what I noticed when I was really early on is the medical stuff was so much harder to see myself in than the actual voices of the people explaining their life with a human perspective. Uh, because it's the medical perspective is very one-sided. It's very yeah. gloom and doom. Whereas the human perspective is a balanced view. You know, autistic people, we're not just a bunch of weaknesses like that medical book wants people to think. We are people. We have strengths and weaknesses. We're like a balance of both of those things equally, strengths and weaknesses. And so it's, it's nice to see a balanced approach and see humans talking about things. And it's a more beautiful human picture. Whereas if you only read that medical narrative, I try not to read it unless I need to source it as a resource for something. And it's gross mm. every time I read it. Uh, you know, you, it, it's, it's not, it just, just put it away, put it away. Don't, don't, you know, humanize it. I mean, I guess maybe you need, you, you might want to understand what it is in the medical term, but it, it wasn't very helpful to me. And even after I was diagnosed, it was very helpful to me to put that away and read other autistic voices. And, you know, if, if you want to know more, you can look at the diagnostic process if that's appropriate for you. But like you were saying, uh, having a diagnosis, if you are able to access it where you are, because there's complications in that as well, you, you may not be able to get that um, depending on where you live. But then having it on your record could potentially be used against you in some cases, like mm -hmm. it, it was in your case. So mm -hmm. is having a diagnosis going to be helpful to you? I needed it because I was at a point in my working career where I realized I needed accommodations to be able to stay in the workforce that I wasn't going to be able to get without having this diagnosis um so it was something i absolutely needed and i was i stood to gain more than i would lose by having the diagnosis and going through that process uh, so it's a, it's a very personal uh, decision you have to make as if you want to go down that route yeah krista aka the neurodivergent rebel thank you for telling me your journey let's hope we get out of this mess somehow and we can go back to some sort of normality <laughs> But then, oh gosh, but then, the word normal, we can't use that. We're all unique. Yes. So thank you for being part of the journey. And I'm going to say goodbye for now. Thank you so much. Bye.
That was The Journey, hosted by Wise Words Imaging, hosted by David Hackett, produced by Melissa Hackett. Be sure to like, subscribe and listen to another journey coming soon. I'm too sexy for my love. The Journey will be interviewing White Said Fred, one of the UK's most enduring pop exports. Since forming in 1989, brothers Fred and Richard Fairbrass have a list of achievements as songwriters and a band that includes number one hits in 70 countries, including two US number ones, three UK number ones and a number one in Japan. They were also the first band to reach for number one slot in the US with a debut single since the Beatles. We'll be talking to Richard and Fred very soon about their new single, Your Inner Light Is Love which is a song about light versus darkness. A song of unity. It's a feel-good factor optimistic song about the ability of everyone of us to shine a light and give. It is antidote to all the doom and gloom. It is our time to shine. Coming soon to the journey. Right said Fred. (laughs) 